Well, I don't know about you, but I've really been enjoying reading this book, um, Basic Christianity, and I hope that you have your copy. If you don't, there's still some out in the front, and you can grab one for yourself. Um, what we're doing is we're preaching alongside this book, just to kind of walk through what it is that Jesus came to accomplish, why that matters to you, who he was, what he did, and, uh, and it's, it's rich, it's exciting, it's very challenging, so I would encourage you to grab this book and read along with us. Um, today we're going to go forward from chapter 7, which was the death of Christ. You heard from Ryan Lanigan last week about that. Um, we're going into chapter 8 now, uh, talking about the salvation of Christ today. So we get to the good news. Like, really, the whole first part of the book has been set up for what we get to talk about now in the next couple of weeks. And uh, so I wanted to start that discussion about salvation, thinking about when I first heard about salvation way back in the mid-1980s. And this is a picture of my church uh, when I was a little kid. And this was probably maybe 1985 or something, this picture. And, uh, and so for me, when I think about when I first encountered the idea of the gospel or salvation or someone saying to me, you need to be saved, it was in that building with those people. And there were often times that that would be the theme of the whole service, just like here. Um, and then certainly, even when it wasn't the primary theme, it was always an opportunity. It was always, hey, this is the, the next step if you've not walked with Jesus before, is you need to be saved, um, which is an interesting word. I mean, to be saved sounds like something is wrong and that we need some sort of rescue, right? But... So we're going to talk about that today. We'll talk about what it means to be saved. Now, one of the songs that we used to sing in this church was uh, this one, and I, I don't know if you all know this song or not. Um, I ran it by Trevor, and he didn't recognize it. So, you know, each church kind of has their favorite songs that they sing, but this was an old hymn, and it was really a missions hymn to talk about why we need to go spread the gospel. Say, we have heard the joyful sound, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, and it goes on, and we're going to spread the tidings around, we're going to bear the news to every land, we'll climb the steeps, cross the waves, onwards is our Lord's command, and why are we doing all that? Well, because Jesus saves. So for me, this message got really personal the day that I was in this family picture. Um, so there we are, 1989. Um, you don't have to do that. I don't really don't think I'm that cute in this picture. I, you know, I, it is who I was. I can't change that. But um, the, the sort of spaced out guy looking next to me is my dad. And uh, my dad, on this day, now this is like a calendar miracle here, but this is actually the day he became a Christian. So from the early 80s, we were, my mom was bringing my sister and I to that church. We were hearing all about following Jesus and, you know, learning the Bible. And I remember it was just a reoccurring prayer request at church and at home, but my dad would become a Christian. My dad was like a really tough case. He, he, was, he was very much into drug culture. Uh, he was also into alcohol. He had, he had lots of negative history, and he was extremely resistant to anything religious, so he would say to my mom, hey, if you want to go to church and do that, good for you, but keep it out of my face. That was his attitude toward this for about five years. When on the morning of this picture, he finally cracked and he became a Christian. He, he said, I, I, I know I need this in my life. I say, well, how did we end up with this picture? 
Well, it was the, the church photo directory day, and my dad had agreed way ahead of time, yes, I'll come and be in the family picture with you, even though that's the only time I'm going into that church. And that kind of, so, so here we are. He's actually coming down off of a bunch of drugs in this picture, which is you can kind of see in the eyes there. And, uh, but that day changed my whole family tree, my whole story, and, and like my personal story as well, because I got to see in my own household a total transformation from death to life, from being unsaved to being saved. And, uh, and so as my dad, you know, had this big transformation in his life, and he left drugs and alcohol, and he started to follow Jesus, and today he's a jail chaplain in Ohio. I've told this story before. Some of you have met him. Um, I was so excited about Jesus' salvation that I made a sign, Jesus saved, and I nailed it to the telephone pole in front of our house. And for quite a while, that held up in the weather or whatever, Jesus saves. So I think about that word, like I, I was immersed in a culture, we were talking about that all the time because we were seeing it, we were living it, like our church was preaching it, but you know, you could come to church and hear preachers and just kind of go away and forget what they say, right? You, I know you don't have that problem, but many people do. So when it got real in my house, like when Jesus actually saved, suddenly that all made sense. Like you sing that song with some richer meaning, right? So here's what the Bible says about being saved, and we're just going to dig in and ask what, what it actually means. So Romans 10.9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So a lot of us have learned that verse as a part of how we would share our faith with someone else, right? Because it's just crystal clear. Like, there it is. If you want to be saved, that's what you have to do. Um, so what does it mean to be saved? Well, we could probably add more synonyms if we wanted to, but just to sort of color this in, uh, it means to be rescued or redeemed or protected or freed or liberated, liberated salvaged, purchased, you could think about different images in your mind, maybe depending on the kind of person you are, um, you might have different sort of salvation images. You know, for me, uh, it would be like, you know, you're kidnapped by some terrorist somewhere and then the Navy SEALs burst in and they save you, right? That's being saved. Uh, you might think about someone, you know, maybe you've typed a really long document and you, you, your heart, you know, skips a beat when you think, wait a minute, I haven't saved that thing for a while. I need to save it. It needs to be protected. Uh, there, there's different ways we use the word. All of them are kind of illustrations of what Jesus is willing to do for us, what it means to be saved in the Christian sense. Um, so what I'm going to do is walk through some theory about this, and then we're going to open up to Romans 8 specifically and look at how salvation works. We're going to think through that scripture uh, but let me give you this background and kind of pull from some other places in the Bible to show you what we're saved from and then what we're saved for by Jesus. So we're saved from the penalty of our sin. We've talked about that in the last few weeks, right? The wages of sin is death. There's consequence. There's judgment. When, when we sin, we face God's wrath. And so Jesus saves us from those consequences. The pointlessness of sin in 1 Peter, he talks about how you're saved from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. And I think about that verse as one reason I celebrate being, like if I said, how has Jesus saved me? Other than just in the you know, theological sense. Say, well, I was saved from going down the same road my dad went down. 
when my dad was saved, it changed our household. It changed my future too. Um, my grandpa on my dad's side was a raging alcoholic. Um, both of my grandparents on that side died before I was born uh, because of substance abuse-related diseases. So they were, that family was just devastated by alcohol and drugs. My dad was living that out, and then Jesus intercepted the situation, saved my dad, and it changed my story too. So I think, wow, if, I hadn't have, if that hadn't have happened, I might be living a pointless life of drugs and alcohol by now as well. So I'm really grateful for salvation from that pointless way of life. Uh, the power of sin. When you become a Christian, it's not just that in sort of the heavenly ledger you're forgiven. It's actually that in your life, now you can start to live like Jesus instead of like you used to live. So you're actually empowered to be a new kind of a person. Uh, and then the presence of sin, ultimately, when we die and we're with Jesus in heaven, Revelation 22 talks about the moment when and all of the reconciliation is done, and we're out of the presence of sin forever. And from there, we just get to live in the joy and purpose of life that God had intended all along for us, and finally we're free from just even the presence of sin uh, in us. Okay, So that's, the, that's what we're saved from. Say, well, why is God interested in this? What's he trying to do by saving us? Well, he's going to save us for something. For your total transformation into a pure, purpose-filled child of God who is eager to do what's good, who can live forever with God and others in perfect joy. So God wants to transform your heart so that you can be a part of his kingdom and purpose forever. Okay, so that's really exciting. And I don't even think we begin to understand what that's going to look like on the, on the kind of the other side of this life as we enter into the next. But I have a feeling that whatever we think is great in this life, it's going to be orders of magnitude greater in the next life. Uh, so God is saving us from our sin so that, we can, so that we can be a part of what he's always wanted. So now we're going to look at Romans 8 and just think through that chapter, looking for clues, looking for wisdom about what salvation really means, what it could mean for you. So the whole book of Romans is really all about salvation, I mean, really from start to finish. At the very beginning of Romans, Paul makes the case of why people need to be saved, talks about the mechanics of how it happens in chapter 5, uh, then walks through the power of sin being broken in our lives in chapter 6 and 7, and now we get to chapter 8 where we find victory and possibility and joy and a forward purpose that, that, that once you're saved, God has done something so drastic in your life that there's no way you can't be a transformed person. So let's read this text together. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. And we explored that a few weeks ago, right? That, and you could look at the law, like you could say, here's the standard of what God wants, and all it really does is show you how short you're falling. Like there, the law doesn't help you fix the problem you have, it just shows you the problem you have. So that wasn't going to suffice. Just the Ten Commandments in front of us wasn't going to save us. So God did what the law could not do. 
He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have, and in that body God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. So Jesus died, as we talked about last week, to take our place. His death was so that you didn't have to die. His death was so that you could have life. He paid your penalty for you. Verse 5, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. See, the problem is, I mean, one of the aspects of our salvation is we have to be saved from ourselves, right? We have a sinful nature that would predispose us to do selfish things, wrong things, to walk away from God. So we have to be saved from ourselves. Jesus offers us this pathway, this road. Self-help won't do it. Seeing the law more, like studying the Bible more won't fix you. That just shows you what needs to happen. A miracle has to happen, and that's what Jesus steps in and does. Something way more powerful than your sinful nature has to be brought into the equation. So verse 9 says, you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, The Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raises Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. See, the exciting truth here is that when you're saved, you're brought, you're, it's like there's a bridge. You're moved from the category of death and sin and being tied to all of that into a, you walk across the bridge, now you're in a new category. Now you're a part of the family of life. Uh, Now the Holy Spirit guides your life, not your sinful nature. He says, so you've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. So now we call him Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact... Together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we will also share in his suffering. Now, here's where it gets exciting. Like, we recognize, all right, Jesus has done something momentous for us, something miraculous. He's saved us from our, where we were going and what it all added up to and given us a whole new pathway for life. 
So verse 18 says, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. That's because of sin. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including new bodies that he's promised us. When we were given this hope, we were given this hope when we were saved. And if we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. We just look forward confidently to something we don't yet have. We must wait patiently and confidently. So the day that you become a Christian, God brings you into his family, and now your future is a whole different future than it would have been. Now you're on a completely different track that leads toward glory instead of toward death. And the Holy Spirit, verse 26, says, helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows our hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. And the Spirit pleads for us, believers, in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance. He chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. There it is again. God's aim has always been to build a huge family. And, and you get to be a part of that vision, that future, when you're saved. You're saved from this world and it's heading into new life. And verse 30, having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. So what shall we say about wonderful things such as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? That is, if you're saved by God, if he is the one that broke down the door and rescued you from the terrorists, if he's the one that says, you're mine, you're protected, you're redeemed, what what would you ever have that could stand against that? What power or threat could ever come to you and change that story? Say, no matter what happens to me in terms of physical suffering in this life, nothing can separate me from God's love. So that's where he goes next. He says, since he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse those whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from, God's, or from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity 
or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death. As the scriptures say, for your sake, we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, all the trials out there in the world, all the darkness we can be afraid of, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for our today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's what you get in mind. When you put your faith in Jesus and he saves you, you're saved, you're secure, you have purpose, you have a future, you step forward now in confidence as one of God's children, that's an amazing salvation. It's not just sort of like a one-time thing, like you're saved right now, but then you're right back into the thick of problems. No, you're saved. You're saved from the, the pointless dreariness of living a temporary life in this world with no ultimate connection to God. You're saved from your sin, from the evil that lurks in your heart. You're saved so that you can become a new person. So all of that is wrapped up. When you say Jesus saves, he's doing all of that for you. There's nothing that you're doing to make that happen. It's not like you save yourself, right? You're saying, no, I, I believe, because I see what Jesus has done, I'm going to put my faith in him to save me so that I can now be a part of God's family forever. I love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 um, because it just describes so simply what this is all about. God saved you by his grace when you believed. So you say, I'm not sure if I'm saved. Well, have you believed? Have you put your faith in Jesus instead of in yourself? That's step one on this road, right? So God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. There won't be anybody in heaven who's you know, walks up to their friend kind of comparing notes like, wow, you're here, it's exciting. And the guy's like, man, I am here because I did a great job in my earthly life. I'm here because I attended the church. I'm here because I was righteous. I was a strong American. I, I'm here. No, that no one will be able to boast because anyone who ends up in heaven is only there because of God's mercy and grace. So everyone who's there is going to say, I don't deserve to be here. The reason I'm here is because God is so gracious. He saved me out of my life and what I would have been and who I could have ended up as. He saved me and gave me a whole new road to walk. See, the next phrase there in verse 10 says, we are God's masterpiece. We're not our own masterpiece. We're not trying to craft ourselves into some sort of an ideal and then present ourselves to God. Oh, God is the one doing this amazing work in our heart, in our lives. And why? Well, he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. And I really believe that for every one of us, this is both generally true and specifically true. 
So generally, we could say all of us ought to be living our purpose in life, and God has given us a purpose, and there's much good out in front of us that we're supposed to go do. So when we're saved, we get on that road. But specifically for you, God already built into you gifts and skills and abilities and passions, and all of that now gets redeemed as well. And, and all that you are, you get to start living out for good um, when you're saved. So, am I ready to ask for salvation? Two things you might ask. Well, first of all, do I believe Jesus? We've talked a lot about him in the last eight weeks. Right? All the way back to chapter one of basic Christianity. Do you believe Jesus' claim that he's the Lord? Do you believe when he says he has the way of life, when he says he is the way to the Father, do you believe Jesus? So if you can pass that check mark, then you ask the next one. Have I counted the cost of following him? There's a lot of people out there who would say they believe Jesus, but they're not actually going anywhere with Jesus. Because even though academically they would say, yeah, I subscribe to that way of thinking, they actually have counted the cost. They said, I still would rather live my life my way. Even though I know this is right, I would still rather do my own thing. Which seems really silly, but a lot of people think that way, right? So next week, uh, we'll talk about what it means to count that cost. That if you decide to put your faith in Jesus instead of in yourself, what will that look like in your life? What kind of a commitment is involved in following Jesus in walking across that bridge from death to life and now you're living this new life, you do have to leave behind the death. <laughs> and so we have to count that cost. Jesus told us to do that. So just to challenge you ahead of time a little bit toward that, I want to add one question uh, to this slide. Am I ready to ask for salvation? Do I believe Jesus? Have I counted the cost of following him? Have I counted the cost of not following him? So on that note, let's pray and ask God for wisdom. Well, Jesus, we, first of all, thank you for the simple truth that you do save, that you save people who are down and out, you save people who are uh, wicked and twisted, you save people who are helpless, you save people who are guilty. You save people who are full of themselves and full of pride. Lord, you've saved us uh, for your purposes, even though we did not deserve it. So now we look ahead. And as Romans 8 taught us, there's all sorts of future glory in our lives. There's an inheritance coming, and we can walk through suffering and darkness right now because we know we've already been saved in the areas that count the most. So Lord, would you help us face the future with bold confidence? And I pray that each one of us, in our hearts, Lord, would not just be clinging to something in our mind, uh, some words that we've spoken, or what church we've attended, or some good works that we tried to do, but instead we really would trust in you for our salvation. Lord, that we would believe you and then follow you. 
So, Heavenly Father, I know each person who's here right now is probably at a different place on that journey of following you. If there are some who need to cross the bridge, who need to be saved, I pray that today they would recognize their need and walk toward you, put their faith in you. Lord, as all of us together are studying your word, uh, we, we want to continue to follow you. Uh, regardless of what happens in this life. But right now today, if there's someone who needs to come to that point of decision, Lord, would you give them the grace that they'll need? Um, Would you graciously reach out and touch their heart? For those of us who've been following you for a long time, I pray that uh, that little chorus, that little hymn that we looked at about telling that news to everyone that we can heralding that good news across the world that Jesus saves. Lord, we want to be out there as good news bearers in a world filled with bad news. So help us to be faithful to that today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you. Read chapter 8, and we'll see you next week.